so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Hmm. Well, can you hear me now or is it still very delayed? The delay is so long, it, it actually doesn't make sense to do FaceTime. It's I mean, it's so long. <laughs> Actually, no, no, Lindsay, you're you're alive. What? W- when your face moves, it matches up with FaceTime. It's Josh that is his FaceTime. Superior is your internet over here. Huh, fascinating. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today are my co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Heidi-ho, neighbors. And Brent Leatherwood. Man, it is so good to be back with y'all. Guys, it is good to be back. I've been on vacation. Yeah, man, I've been on vacation uh, for the last several days uh, at the Outer Banks of North Carolina. It's been really fantastic and uh, excited to get into today's show. We're going to be talking to our colleague, Palmer Williams, later on as our special guest. But Lindsay, go ahead and tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Before we get to our content on ERLC.com, I just want to take a minute and let listeners know about our two newsletters that we have, Highlights and The Weekly. You can go to our website at ERLC.com and scroll down to the Stay Connected bar. There you can choose Highlights or The Weekly or both, enter your name and your email and hit the subscribe button. Okay, so right off the bat, we actually have a really exciting piece by Palmer Williams where she explains a comprehensive pro-life bill, just one-of-a-kind pro-life bill. It's really an historic bill that he signed this past week. Now, it's important to mention, and I'm sure Josh or Brent will address this in just a minute, that it's not without opposition. So there's a temporary restraining order that has been issued that's halted the implementation of it. But Palmer, in her article, she talks about what makes this bill unique, and she goes through several of the notable elements and the requirements that abortion doctors have to meet as far as performing an ultrasound. She also goes through and talks about the abortion restrictions at each stage, which really are incredible. And um, Palmer quoted Governor Lee, and he said when he signed this bill, life is precious and everything that is precious is worth protecting. And so we are just thankful that this governor is taking a stand for life in all ages and stages. And uh, we're thankful that Palmer covered this important piece. I am I am so thankful for this piece. And I am, am personally just so excited that, that this is now the law of the land in Tennessee. So You know, for folks who have been listening for a while, you may remember um, that I've talked at various points about my my previous roles uh, over in the political world uh, with the Tennessee legislature and running the the Tennessee Republican Party. And I had a front row seat uh, towards many of the efforts that led to the ability for this law to be written in the legislature and now uh, passed into law and signed by the governor. 
Um, in many ways, this represents the culmination of years of effort uh, by dedicated pro-life activists, uh, by, by Christians who were advocating for the dignity of the preborn. Um, this, without a doubt, I mean, when you survey the land across the country, this represents the most all-encompassing pro-life legislation in the country now. And for so long, Tennessee was seen as kind of this abortion destination in the South. And this law is is going to change that. Uh, countless lives uh, are very likely to be saved uh, because uh, this is now the law in, in Tennessee. And so I'm really thankful uh, that Palmer uh, got us up to speed on this. I'm so thankful uh, for all the years of effort that went into this, and I, I'm really grateful that that Governor Bill Lee uh, has signed this into law. And yes, as you mentioned, Lindsay, about 20 minutes after he signed it, uh, the ACLU uh, filed an injunction uh, to prevent it uh, from taking effect, and so it will be in court uh, relatively soon and adjudicated, and and hopefully this will be done away with so it can actually take effect. Yeah, we can certainly be praying that way. And Brent, you did make a good point. And to use a scripture analogy, over the years, there have been many who have been planting seed and watering it. And so this is a collective effort of many, many people. So we're very thankful. So next up, we have a piece. Wait, 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 Lindsay. Yes. So I would be remiss if I didn't just uh, take a moment and ask you. So in your uh, in your monologue there to begin this, you said an historic achievement, I believe. Yeah, for I think me, that's it's proper. always been a historic achievement. It, I mean, because it it is an H, and you actually pronounce the H. You don't pronounce it I with an I. So I'm just, I'm curious, give me your, your AP style book uh, background on that for our listeners, because I need to know as well. Well, it's definitely A. <laughs> uh, if you were British, you could say N because they don't say the H, they say historic. And so the N comes before uh-huh. the vowel, but because H is not a vowel, well, that's why we say historic and A historic. Yeah, I know, but it had been N before. It was N before. But it has, it no, no, has no, been N. Well, here you go. Josh, that's a that's a really helpful uh, explanation uh, from that kind of British background. So, you know, Lindsay's you know married last name is Nicolay, so that's French, and her maiden name is Swartz, so that well that's not British either. So, I actually have no idea where you got that, Lindsay. Listen, in 1869, a historic and an historic were neck and neck as far as usage, according to the interwebs, and so that's what I'm going with. It makes me sound more um, sophisticated. So next up on our list of articles, we have an article by my former boss, Dan Darling, who is now at the National Religious Broadcasters. But he has a new book coming out about um, the way that we interact online and how we should be using our words. And he is definitely a man that applies this. But he talks about four ways we can apply scripture to online engagement. And they are... Things that we know if you've been in the church for a while, but there are things that are impossible to implement apart from the Holy Spirit. And it's especially more difficult when you have social media just at your fingertips and we oftentimes don't think through what we're saying. So the four points he makes, be slow to speak, be measured, be accountable, be reasonable. And again, Dan lives these things out 
And so um, I would highly recommend that you check out his book too. He's not paying me for it, but uh, he does have four kids that need to go to college one day. So uh, you can help him with that. But very helpful, very timely, especially in our day and age. Finally, we have a piece by Gabriel Stovall, and this piece is about Send Relief. And you might not know this, but this Sunday is Send Relief Sunday. And Send Relief is a mobilization arm. Thank you, behind the scenes, Megan Smith, for that term um, of the North American Mission Board that is so important because it focuses on serving people, being the hands and feet of Christ to people, meeting their tangible needs in order that we can serve their spiritual needs as well and bring them the hope of the gospel. So Gabriel brings us a piece titled, How You Can Serve Your Community During a Pandemic. Sin Relief encourages Southern Baptists to make a difference through compassionate care. And if there has ever been a time for us to show compassionate care, it surely is right now. And so he gives a few easy and, uh, even quick ways that we can serve people, that we can involve families, we can involve children, we can involve our churches. And I know it's hard right now because we don't fully understand how we can serve people and we're all pretty much huddled in our houses, but that's why this piece is so helpful. And this piece just highlights why we as a convention should be so thankful for NAM and for Sun Relief and for how Southern Baptists are largely known for the way that we serve in the midst of crisis. That's so good, Lindsay. And, you know, one of the best questions I think that any church or ministry can ask themselves are like, if we were to close our doors tomorrow and disappear uh, from our community, who would miss us? Like, what what difference would that make? And in terms of... Uh, Emergency response and disaster relief, that is one of the ways that Southern Baptists have for decades uh, served their communities and met real needs. And so just even in this time of pandemic, uh, NAM is still trying to lead the way in providing ways for Southern Baptists to serve others uh, who find themselves in need during this time. That's true, Josh. And so um, we would encourage you within this article, you can go to sendrelief.org. There's a link there, easy access for you to be able to to look at Send Relief, check them out and find out ways that you can serve. So we have a lot of other great content on our site this week, but these are just a few of the pieces that I wanted to highlight. So Josh and Brent, that's your look at ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that takes us to our culture section for the week. So Brent, tell us what's going on. What is going on in California? Like that's the that's the question of the week. Uh, it seems like on the evangelical Twitter, uh, is it not? It definitely is, and not well, just this week. But for you've been on the outer banks. That's always the question of what's going yeah, I was on. Say, <laughs> what's you, going you've been, on in California? <laughs> you've been on the outer. Is it on the outer banks? Is that how you? Is it? Is that the proper usage there? I think they would use on or at. Okay, at, at the outer banks. Okay, because you wouldn't say like I, I've been on. Chattanooga, you know. You could be on Jockey's Ridge, though. So there's that. I I guess there you go. Okay. All right. So what is going on in California? Okay. So uh, we all know that California early on uh, over in the West Coast was a major center of uh, the outbreak here in America uh, with regard to the coronavirus. And uh, in a number of different ways, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, who's the, the governor of the Golden State, uh, he, he got a lot of plaudits uh, for his handling of it very early on. As a matter of fact, over in California, they were able to uh, flatten the curve. However, as reopening has occurred, uh, cases have started to rise uh, exponentially. So in response to those uh, increasing rates around the state, 
uh, Governor Newsom announced this week that indoor operations would need to cease for restaurants, wineries, movie theaters, family entertainment establishments, even zoos and museums. And then in 30 counties, mainly in the southern portion of the state, uh, indoor operations would need to cease for fitness centers, offices for non-essential services, personal care services, hair salons, barbershops, and churches and places of worship. Needless to say, this has caused uh, an outcry in the state. And so it's, a, it's another collision of, of church and state at the local level. Well, I can imagine because, you know, we're starting to experience this here in our home state of Tennessee, where we're having some backtracking from what things have started to open, that it's got to be frustrating for people in California, because you have the first first couple weeks of this going on that you uh, were probably running off of adrenaline. It was something new and not, I'm not exciting, but you know, it was new. It's like camp or something. And then after a couple months of this and you're hoping to reopen again, and then you start to reopen and then everything gets pulled back. And I read a tweet, not by an expert, but he said, I have a feeling that this first four months were just rehearsal for the real play that's about to take place, which I hope is not true. (laughs) But all that to say, I can understand that there's controversy going on because it has got to be a highly emotional, highly frustrating time right now. Right. And, you know, my heart goes out to, uh, I mean, specifically for our churches that are in California that are in these 30 counties, just the emotional roller coaster of uh, you know, moving to online and then probably some sort of phased reopening and then thinking maybe uh, we're, we're going to get back to some sense of, of normalcy and now to say, hey, you, you got to move back outdoor or online if you're going to continue that. Uh, that has got to be uh, so frustrating. I completely understand. And then, honestly, more importantly, the folks that need the community uh, that comes with in-person worship those folks just are are by the wayside. And I mean, this is such a, a season of sacrifice uh, for so many of us across the country. It just seems particularly uh, pointed here in California. And you know, Brent, one of the things you mentioned sacrifice and and it is true. You know, we are we're having to sacrifice what we've known being Christians in America, but but this time also just my mind keeps going again and again to the persecuted church and how um in other countries like they golly, they would just long to be able to meet together or even to have the luxury to meet outside in an open field together without fear of of retribution. And so I just think this is not fun and this is not pleasant and this doesn't um, belittle any of the suffering that's happening. But goodness, we're just kind of where we're used to being consumers in America and the church. We're just beginning to understand maybe what sacrifice means and what following Christ means when conditions are not ideal. Lindsay, I think that's really good. This whole situation has been so difficult because, number one, none of us have ever lived through anything like this before, and we are 
together, we're all trying to find our way. Our work at the ERLC focuses on religious liberty, and there have been tons of questions that have come up in recent months about uh, the religious liberty uh, implications and sometimes over like overstepping on behalf of local governments, on state governments, trying to find their way to best uh, safeguard and protect public health, and how the interplay between church and state and that has created a lot of questions. Uh, I know recently in California, one of the big points of, of tension has been over uh, whether or not churches would be allowed to sing uh, as they are conducting their worship services. And there's been a lot of back and forth online about that. The problem with this particular situation, like many others, is that it's just way more complicated than a simple churches have a right to sing. It's a religious liberty issue. Like in, in the midst of the pandemic, uh, we are really trying to balance these considerations. And we know there is plenty of data uh, that shows us that uh, when churches have gathered together for singing or in instances where there have been choirs in other cases, it has uh, led to more spread with the virus. And that's something that we know for sure. So when we're thinking about what the state should do in terms of guidance for churches or even in terms of mandates for churches, this is an incredibly complex thing. Not to mention the fact that, you know, we have, uh, we're located in, you know, Nashville, Tennessee. We have an office in DC, but we are connected to pastors and Christian leaders uh, on the ground in all 50 states. And especially in California, those are the people that we've been leaning in and talking to uh, to find out how this is how this is being received, where they are. And the truth is that there are an overwhelming number of pastors who recognize uh, the need uh, in a way that people who don't live in the state of California, where there is not such a you know spread of infection, they just they, it doesn't resonate with them in the same way. And so while we want to be incredibly cautious and we want to uh, see our brothers and sisters in California and elsewhere be able to resume everything that looks like returning to normal as soon as possible. Possible. The truth is that we're we're doing everything we can uh, to try to help churches ministry effectively and to be in conversation and take action where needed uh, to push back against government overreach. But with what we're navigating here or seeing here in California, it's just you know my, my word for that would just be it's just much more complicated than a simple black and white. Uh, this is re- this is a religious liberty thing or not. Josh, that's really good. And as a matter of fact, we will link in the show notes. There was a Baptist Press article that interviewed. Uh, several folks in California about the situation there. One of the individuals that they uh, talked with was Roland Slade. He is the new executive committee trustee chairman. So uh, he is one of the leading figures in the Southern Baptist Convention. And there was a line in his quote to Baptist Press that really struck me. He said, it doesn't sound like Governor Newsom is talking with anyone in the faith community or or really knows anyone. And that's, hey, that's really sad to me. And I would hope uh, that Governor Newsom uh, and his staff are actively reaching out and trying to cultivate uh, relationships with folks who are faith leaders so that, A, they can understand our perspective uh, as people of faith and then also help communicate what the rationale is for their decisions. Uh, Because, you know, look, if you're being uncharitable, you can say, look, none of these seem to make sense. And this just seems to be all completely inconsistent. And and look, this, these last six months have been such a roller coaster. Uh, I I could see why uh, any folks would arrive at that conclusion. But when you have someone out there like Pastor Slade, or, uh, you know, we've got trustee members from the RLC that pastor in California, when you've got leaders like this of such a big denomination like the Southern Baptist Convention, I would hope you are utilizing them as resources to understand why Christians, why the the broader uh, faith community uh, has concerns about this. And I'll say I have reached out now 
in my role at the RLC uh, to Governor Newsom's chief of staff, um, asking for some clarity on uh, the the singing guidance that you mentioned earlier, Josh, and also just kind of re-upping with their team, hey, it, it would be good for us to, to really have a, a conversation uh, that I think could be helpful both in providing clarity for us and clarity uh, for them. Hopefully, it's not like Pastor Slade was saying, that they're not wanting to listen. And hopefully it's just that they are very busy uh, trying to uh, produce guidance that protects their citizens from this virus. So uh, that's, a, that's a lot on California, but I, I hope folks understand we are uh, working in the midst of this to try and create uh, bridges of communication uh, between us in the Southern Baptist world and with civic leaders like Gavin Newsom. Well, listen, uh, that sound you hear may be parents screaming inside their hearts because a new study was released from Israel showing uh, their experience with schools reopening. So uh, it was reported this week that on June 3rd, two weeks after schools reopened, more than 244 students and staff were found to test positive for the virus. According to the Israeli Education Ministry, 2,026 students, teachers, and staff have now contracted the virus, and 28,000 are in quarantine due to possible exposure. That is an alarming number. You have to remember, Israel is a relatively small country, relatively small population, particularly as it relates to America. And these results uh, seem to suggest that they're having some adverse effects with reopening schools, which is just around the the corner here in the states how badly are you screaming in your heart right now brent oh it's deafening yeah we just got the plans uh for our schools reopening i think i noticed your hair like turning gray in real time here on facetime while we're recording just by talking about it it's turning gray and and probably by the time that school is supposed to begin in about four weeks it will have completely fallen out that would be a so tragedy. this is going to be a it would be this is going to be a giant social experiment here in America, and I'm sure we're all looking forward to this. But as you said earlier, Lindsay, this is when the real play begins. Everything else has just been dress rehearsal. All right. So while we're on the coronavirus front, uh, I thought this CNBC report uh, was was pretty interesting. Facebook has announced it will launch a new section of its social network dedicated solely to dispelling inaccurate myths about coronavirus. Makes me think they're they're going to take down some conspiracy theories that m- might even be out there. What does that mean? Like, do they have a special team that has special insight into all the accurate articles about coronavirus since it's such a, uh, a moving target? Well, I would imagine that it's going to involve a bank of fact checkers who are out there trying to put out the latest that we know about coronavirus. And we should point out what we know about coronavirus has changed, in some cases done a 180 from what we knew previously about the virus. But uh, I, I think in the main, this could be a productive exercise because Facebook has almost 3 billion users and has taken steps to to stop the spread of misinformation about the virus. So uh, hopefully that this will be something that, uh, that, that folks find helpful. All right, so domestically, let's, let's look at the world of politics. So we were all excited uh, a while ago 
uh, last week when Kanye West announced he was running for president of the United States. And that's now over. Kanye West is pulling out of the race for the White House. Which absolutely dashed the hopes of our former colleague and friend, Andrew T. Walker, who is a Kanye enthusiast. I mean, he, you know, he's no Elon Musk, but on in the hierarchy of Kanye fandom, I think that, uh, you know, Andrew is up there. And so I know he is deeply, deeply saddened to see Kanye exit uh, so quickly. The race That's right. And, and I know that Dr. Walker was angling for that plum job of, uh, was it Minister of Culture? In the Yi ad- administration? I think that's right. That's right. But if you're in Oklahoma, if you're a listener in Oklahoma to this podcast, the, the flagship podcast of the ERLC, uh, if you're in Oklahoma, apparently you will have the opportunity to cast your vote for Kanye West for president. Uh, this is according to the latest reporting from one Jonah Goldberg on Twitter, which is always known for its accurate information. But Jonah, I, I do consider pretty accurate. And needless to say, um, if you're in the, the Sooner State, get your Kanye bumper stickers ready. So anyways, well, the reason, actually, there, there is a reason that, that maybe uh, Kanye West uh, did decide to pull out, because apparently he has already missed uh, the voter registration deadline in, in multiple states. And so his filing deadline, actually, for the presidency is, uh, is passed. And so... Um, that, that certainly could, uh, could hurt his chances. Elsewhere in the political uh, world, the Republican National Committee is planning to sharply limit attendance for its convention next month in Jacksonville, Florida, hometown of one whoop, whoop. Lindsay Nicolay. There you go. Uh, that will have the effect of shrinking the event that uh, President Donald Trump was, uh, was planning to host there in, in Jacksonville. Party Chairwoman Ronnie McDaniel, who is overseeing planning for the convention, has written a letter to RNC members saying that attendance for the first three nights of the four-night event will be limited to delegates only. And as a reminder, conventions are typically attended by not just delegates, but uh, party staffers, activists uh, for the party, and um, it usually hosts several thousands uh, of people. And uh, that doesn't look like that's going to be the case. Well, it's important to remember, too, that it's happening in the midst of a state that is uh, quickly becoming the epicenter of the coronavirus. My mom uh, has friends that she checks in with in Florida, and they say it's it's kind of wild right now. And so, uh, so it'll be interesting to see the aftermath of that. That's right. And you're right. This week, uh, South Florida was categorized as the epicenter of the outbreak uh, here in the United States. And so ultimately, we want to praise them because uh, this seems like a wise move given that context uh, of the virus. Uh, So to limit uh, folks coming in, and um, obviously we want the political process to continue uh, playing out the way that it should. But that, that this actually seems like a pretty smart move on behalf of, uh, of the RNC. Okay, so on the international front, I think this is uh, something that we will probably be able to provide some content on. The BBC is reporting that the world is ill-prepared for the global crash in children being born, which is set to have a, quote, jaw-dropping impact on societies, say researchers. Falling fertility rates mean nearly every country could have shrinking populations by the end of the century. 
That's amazing. Look, that data is honestly, it's not surprising, but it is devastating uh, to see that, you know, dropping fertility rates actually represent way more than just the kind of top line, oh, we're having less children. Uh, It actually says a lot about the state of society and about the integrity of families and about the value of children in people's lives. And so this is something that is, it is stunning, but it's also deeply depressing. That's right. So scientifically, uh, what the researchers say is that if the number, if the fertility rate number falls below approximately 2.1, then the size of the population starts to fall. What they are projecting by the end of the century is a rate of 1.7. That actually is going to lead to a pretty dramatic decline in the population globally. Okay. On the pop culture front, Ford is releasing three new versions of the classic Ford Bronco. There will be the 2021 Bronco and Bronco Sport. So you'll have a a four-door option, a two-door option, and a mini ute option. This actually took the the car world by storm this week. I, I was actually fairly excited about it. Yeah, I saw that, Brent. And uh, honestly, among the people that I've been around, I've heard really mixed reviews. Some people have thought it looked really incredible. And even some of the stuff I've saw on social media, people were really uh, all about it. And then particularly women, I've heard a lot of, oh my gosh, who would ever drive that? So I think they look pretty sweet. All right. And so finally, uh, kind of on the the fun front, uh, our our field reporter out there, Megan Smith, she highlighted this one. And honestly, I was I was pretty complexed about it because I, I, I don't understand the, the kids these days on the interwebs. But Good Morning America. Did you America, say you're pretty complexed? Not perplexed or, you know. I was going to call him out on it, but whatever. Keep it in there, oh, Gary. Oh, no, take it out. <laughs> you say I was pretty complexed about it. <laughs> uh, no, California. I need a cake is, link. Is com- complex. Cake, Com- complex, cake complex. objects. Right. <clears throat> what do I type in? All right. Good Morning America reported this week that distinguishing pastries made of layers of sponge and frosting from other inanimate objects has seemingly always been a piece of cake. But Twitter and TikTok users are eating up a new viral trend, sharing reactions to hyper-realistic cake-cutting videos that shock viewers when it's revealed that an everyday object was in fact a cake. I definitely do not understand the kids on the social medias these days. I I just have to say, I want my cake to look like a cake. So if my cake looks like an eggplant, as I was just scrolling and seeing, I'm less likely to enjoy it. You're just traditional in that way, Lindsay. You're just classy. I guess so. Yeah, but I'm with Brent. I have no idea what these uh, internet fads are about. And honestly, it's it makes me feel so old because I don't even want to appreciate them. I just want them to go away. I just feel like a, you know, crotchety old man. Yeah. Well, these days, we all have a lot of time on our hands. And I feel like this is just a, you know, manifestation of that reality. All right. So, Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. Now we're about to talk to our friend and colleague, Palmer Williams. Palmer is an attorney and an adoption advocate, and she is instrumental uh, to our efforts here at the ERLC, and we're excited to talk to her today. 
So Palmer, we just want to say thanks so much for joining us. We're excited to talk to you today. And as we get started, uh, would you tell us how you're serving in ministry right now? And also, what is one thing that God is teaching you in this season of life and ministry? Sure. So I'm thankful I get to work with the ERLC, and that is um, a really uh, fun part of my ministry. I do legal and policy analysis for any issues that um, involve those two things at the ERLC. So whether it's pro-life or um, our tackling sexual abuse within um, the SBC or um, any of our big Supreme Court cases that are coming down um, from Capitol Hill. So I love getting to do that and walk alongside the ERLC in that ministry. But then on a personal level, um, I am teaching a Bible study at um, my church in Nashville, and Lindsay is actually in it. Um, so she can tell you how it how it is. But um, so it's good. Been Oh, good, good. Well, it's been so fun to get to just sit and open the word with ladies at our church. Um, We've been going, this past year, we went through Joshua and Judges. Um, So we started on one of the darkest books, Judges, in January because the Lord is um, has a funny sense of humor and also knew that's what we <laughs> needed um, was just to, to see um, a dark period in the Bible and, and be able to glean what does it look like to um, be in a hard season for um, the world. Uh, so it's been such an honor to get to um, do that and, um, and walk alongside um, my sisters at our church. You know, I mean, I'm I'm sure that like many of y'all, schedules pre-COVID were just insane and not sustainable and not healthy. Um, and the Lord just kind of uh, grinded us all to a halt. And, and that has been such a blessing for our family to have our schedules cleared and to be able to just spend time together and to realize how important being faithful in the monotonous every day. I have three little boys who are five, three, and one. And so um, we do a lot of the same things over and over again. And the Lord is teaching me that being faithful in those little moments and in the the days that look the same um, is so important. And it's where he really shapes our character. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that. You know, it's not always easy, but um, it is a lot of fun. Such a good lesson, Palmer, and that's one of my favorite parts of this um, interview time when we ask people what God is teaching them. It's, it's just good to hear and good to be reminded of. So this podcast focuses on culture and what's happening around us, and we had a big cultural moment in Tennessee this week, and we actually discussed earlier on the podcast the article that you wrote about, or the article you wrote about this amazing pro-life bill that was signed by Tennessee's governor. So can you tell us what excites you about this bill and maybe give us some insight into what the temporary restraining order might mean for the future of the bill? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it is a really neat bill. It's innovative. It's comprehensive. Um, I haven't seen a bill in any other state like it. Um, we've, we definitely, I'm in Tennessee, so I get to say we, cause I'm really proud of our governor and our legislature for passing this. We did model it after, um, a law in Missouri, um, which created, um, and, and pioneered this, what they call the ladder provision. And I think it's a really neat, I know it sounds super nerdy and can get kind of, um, in the weeds of the law, but basically it means that when, if the court strikes down part of the law of being too expansive based on um, the gestational age of the baby, anytime they re- they 
peel back the law, um, the law can still stand because it has what's called a severability clause. It means it can be that part of the law can be taken away, it can be severed, but the law itself can still stand. So I think that that is a really neat and important part of the law. I also love that this that it bans abortion because of the sex or race or um, disability of the preborn child. And this is huge language to protect the dignity um, and to, to protect against discrimination based on um, sex, race, or disability, which we know is so important. Um, and, and especially in seeing so many children with Down syndrome um, being aborted, um, this law would, would not allow you to be able to do that again. And I think that that is really, really important. Um, when it comes to the temporary restraining order, so... In um, early June, when the Senate passed the bill, Planned Parenthood and the ACLU and a couple other abortion rights groups filed a suit against the bill in federal court here in Nashville. Um, And so as soon as the, um, the governor signed the bill, a judge was asked to um, issue a, a restraining order, a temporary restraining order, um, to delay the implementation of the ban. And he did that. And um, there'll be another... And through, I'm sorry, the the restraining order goes through July 27th. There'll be another hearing on July 24th um, to see whether there can be what's called a preliminary injunction, which would basically just stop the rollout of the um, of the bill and extend that restraining order until the courts can rule on whether the law is constitutional or not. Um, this was very expected. We, you know, we we've seen this sort of pattern throughout the country. And so we're hopeful that the courts will rule in our favor and say that this law is um, actually protecting life. Um, but we'll see. We um, we will just continue to pray um, that that uh, this really neat bill can, can, um, can go into effect in Tennessee. That's right. We definitely will be praying for uh, wisdom for this to come to a very quick resolution and for just some 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 sanity, uh, honestly, to be reintroduced into this conversation because our society has got to stop not recognizing the dignity of our, our preborn children. And, and so I am so thankful for your efforts, for the efforts of some really good friends in the administration and, of course, of Governor Lee. Uh, for for stewarding this forward and getting this signed into law. And so uh, I just, I, I hope you hear my just level of appreciation for you, Palmer, on this. Okay, so speaking of, uh, you are a tireless advocate for life, all ages and stages. How did you develop this passion, Palmer, for, for advocating for the dignity of, of all people? Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually am, um, I have a disability. I am a paraplegic. I was in a car accident when I was eight years old. And so I've lived the last 25 years of my life um, in a chair. And I think um, having that accident at such a young age really gave me a literal and figurative new perspective on life. And I've gotten to see what it looks like to be counted out um, or treated as less than because of my abilities. And so I've, I've experienced what, what it can look like when... Um, when dignity isn't offered to our fellow image bearers. And I think that was the first start of, okay, what does it mean to truly, that we all bear the Imago Day, and how can we um, uphold that for our um, fellow um, image bearers? And so that kind of was the start, I think, the impetus of what got me excited about life and, and protecting it. I think 
you know, I um, went to a secular university and I, I got to experience a lot of different perspectives on life. And, and at every turn, um, the gospel um, and the, the message of hope and, and dignity that it portrays to us, I think, um, was shown in the darkness. And it, it reminded me every time I was confronted with someone who didn't share that same worldview, I, I saw the, the smallness and the hurt that it brought. And so I love that, um, you know, I think being pro-life and being getting to, to advocate for human dignity brings, it brings others out of the shadow and it brings wholeness to um, a broken world. And so that's kind of what, what has always sustained me um, and, and helped me um, when the fight gets hard, because it, it, there definitely can be trying moments um, in this, in this conversation. Palmer, your example and your advocacy is invaluable, and we're so grateful to be able to have you um, on the team at the ERLC and so grateful to, to know you and all the ways that the Lord is using you. So we have sprung a surprise question on you, so it's a bonus question, and then um, <laughs> we'll move into another question. But we just realized as we were talking before we started recording, you're actually the first person we've had on the podcast who has had COVID-19 and come out on the other side of it. So can you just give us an insight into what that was like, how it affected your family, and any um, post-COVID stuff that you've had to deal with? Sure. So my um, family... All five of us, my husband, myself, and our three little boys all got COVID at the beginning of March. Um, And we were exposed at an event um, at my oldest son's school. And that night, 50 of our friends um, all became positive in what was a super spreader event. So we... um, you know, we we didn't realize that we were sick for about a week after we were exposed, and it was super early in the pandemic as far as um, the states go. So there wasn't a lot of information out there. Testing was had not been ramped up. Um, so there was a, a significant week of time when we were acting normal, going to to work, going to, about our business, and then we started to um, to get symptoms, and that prompted us to finally get tested and. Um, some of the symptoms that we had, my husband lost his taste and smell, which was, this was before that was really known to be a symptom. Um, and then he had a pretty dry cough that got progressively worse. I had, on the other hand, a completely different set of symptoms. Mine were much more cardiovascular of feeling like I couldn't breathe, um, rapid heart rate, blood pressure that was really, really off. Um, and then my children had fevers and um, sore throats. And so in my husband, I never had fevers. So it really was, it was amazing to see the way that the, the virus manifests so differently in each of us. Um, but we are so thankful and just praise God that we came through it. And um, it was a tough couple of weeks having mom and dad sick and the babies sick. But thankfully, um, we, you know, have, have healed. My husband still has um, some cough and potentially some some lung scarring um but it is it uh we are grateful that we got to we all are relatively healthy got to go through it and now um hopefully have a little bit of antibody protection though every day I feel like the the research on antibodies changes but it was it was a scary couple of weeks um but thankfully we got to do it together and we're all quarantined and um and we had a lot of friends who were going through the same thing so we could 
kind of bounce our symptoms off one another. And we have an amazing research facility um, at Vanderbilt here in Nashville that's doing incredible COVID research. And so we've actually all, five of us are in a research study um, where they send their researchers out to our house once a week to get blood and um, nasal swabs. So they're really trying to, to innovate and figure out new ways to treat the disease. And my husband's been able to donate plasma to um, the ICU patients over at Vanderbilt to try to help um, with, with some of their care. So um, it had it was definitely a, a, a hard couple of um, weeks or months, that, but we're thankful to be on the other side of it. Well, Palmer, we are so thankful that your family has uh, come through that ordeal successfully. And uh, we know there's uh, a lot of folks out there who have dealt with this virus or know someone who has. And um, my hope is that everyone will uh, be able to arrive at a successful conclusion like y'all have. Okay, so for our final question, you and your husband, Joseph, uh, y'all create fun wherever you go and you love to travel. What has been one of your most favorite trips and which one of your trips would you absolutely recommend to our listeners? You know, when things are actually back to normal and we can all leave our house, which, you know, we'll be able to do that again in 2023. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, I love this question. Gosh, traveling is one of my favorite things in the whole world. And um, it's funny because I had always traveled a lot, but when, but my husband hadn't. And so when we started dating, um, I kind of made that a prereq of just so you know, you have to be okay with traveling. You have to be ready for all my crazy adventures that I want to take us on. And he was very game, which um, was great. So I will say our my favorite trip, um, probably our honeymoon. So we went on an eight-week epic honeymoon um, only because it was in between um, summers of law school. And so we um, knew that we probably weren't going to have that sort of time on our hands um, to get to just go and explore the world together. And so we did. And we went to Europe. But um, the, my favorite part is that I found $200 round trip tickets from Paris to Johannesburg. And I had lived in Africa for a couple of years um, before we dated. And so I really wanted to show Joseph kind of um, where I'd lived and my heartbeat and the the kiddos that I had gotten to serve there. And so we got to do it um, because we found these cheap tickets. So we spent about five weeks in Africa um, at the orphanage where I had lived and he got to meet all of um, my sweet friends and kiddos there. And then we went on safari for a week and it was magical and um, was just such a neat way to get to start off a marriage. So, um, yeah, it was a very epic trip. Um, during quarantine, we've actually, because we are 5 million percent extroverts and needed to get out of the house, but to do so in a safe manner, we've actually been exploring a lot of the Tennessee state parks. And plug for Tennessee, apparently we have, like, the number one ranked state park system in the country. We've been doing a lot of little day trips to hike around um, or overnight camping trip. So if you're looking for something fun to do in the midst of quarantine, you need to get outside. Um, that has been a really great way for our boys to just get that energy out um, so that they don't tear my house down. Um, but I I will say if you're looking for an adventure post-quarantine, we did a road trip um, in Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine a couple of August ago. And it was so fun. It was a great time to be up there because it was a million degrees in the South, but just felt so lovely um, 
in the Northeast, and we found these little old amusement parks called Santa's Village and I think Storytime Village. I can't remember, but they're these 1960s amusement parks that are tiny and hilarious and so fun. So if you're looking for just a great American road trip, I recommend New England in the summer. That's right. Well, Tennessee State Parks, you're absolutely right. They can't be beat. And uh, you mentioned a safari. Uh, I am sure that our listeners would agree that our ERLC podcast can sometimes turn into a safari-like experience. I love it. I I am a big fan of Ural's podcast and listen every week. So I agree that there is a safari element to it every week. Well, Palmer, as always, uh, it's fun to talk to you. <laughs> we are uh, really glad to have you with us on the podcast today. Uh, but thanks so much for taking the time to uh, to spend a few minutes with us. Thanks for having me, guys. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, you're up first this week. What's on your mind? Okay, so I found several things on the interwebs that I just had to share. First off is this so-called stairway. Some people call it the stairway. Some people call it the ladder to heaven in Austria that people climb. And you have to go and click on this link and see it because it is frightening. It's made out of um, steel cables and it is... 43 meters long, which uh, because I live in America and was born here, I don't know how to do the conversions. So I don't know how many feet that is. (laughs) And it's uh, stretched, as they say, stretched over an abyss some 700 meters below, which means very, very high up. So if you watch it, I would like to know if y'all would climb it. Uh, No, I, I, I would not. uh, I would not do that at all. Me either. I have a thing about heights, and even if I'm attached to something, no way, Jose. I like there to be solid ground beneath. I don't have a thing about heights. I don't have a thing about heights. I just just wouldn't do that. You have a thing about safety. Uh, I don't know. I think that it's the kind of thing that I would probably do. Like, so when I hang out with Enneagram sevens, like this would never be my idea, but if I was around a seven who was just like, oh, let's go do it, I'd probably like, okay, let's let's give it a shot. Okay. So the next thing I have uh, is. Shane and Shane, they just come out with a vintage album with songs like Lord, I Lift Your Name on High, uh, Ancient of Days. You have to be a certain age range to appreciate these songs, but they have got some awesome ones on there. And so I would highly recommend that. And then finally, you must, must, must listen to this amazing vocal performance by a lady named Callie Day. And uh, she was actually on America's Got Talent, but that's not what made this go viral. It, it was viral before that, but she ha- she sings um, Hear My Prayer, which I hadn't heard this song before, but it is amazing. And I hope that in the new heavens and the new earth, I have a voice like this. Lindsay, that's some pretty high praise. Oh, well, you'll once you watch it, you'll understand. Got it. Well, for my uh, lunchroom this week, I've been on vacation, as I mentioned, and so I've just spent, you know, some time mindlessly scrolling through the internet, and there are several things that I came upon. Uh, One was a post that said, if 2020 were nachos, and then it shows saltine crackers with, like, that gross Kraft Singles cheese melted on top of them, and it just looks absolutely disgusting, which, uh, honestly, perfectly sums up this year. Uh, You look at it, it's just utter disappointment. Nachos, who doesn't love nachos? This, no one wants this. Uh, And in the same way, I saw something that was not related to 2020, but was uh, this 
It looked like a smoked ham and it looked delicious. And there's a video floating around about the smoked ham that looks delicious when you first look at it. And they're kind of like throwing the juices back up on it. And it looks just, you know, absolutely like something you would want to eat. But then they cut into it and it's not cake. It's smoked watermelon. And it's just like utterly disappointing. Uh, it's, it's one of those, you know, I saw one of those cut, cut it open and it's cake, but it was it looked like steak. And I was like, yeah, I'd rather have steak than the cake. But anyway, this would be like, hey, who wants to uh, have this delicious smoked ham except, oh, just kidding, it's watermelon. Yes. So anyway, disappointing things it was on a, the internet. It, 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 was a, it was a terrifying sight. And it just reminded me of our, our fallen nature. It That's looks very like well a blob said, right? of smoked flesh. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So for, for my lunchroom piece, I want to give a hat tip to Pastor Ray Ortland, who actually was the, the first person to, to put this on my radar. But what a heartwarming story here. A six-year-old Wyoming boy is being hailed as a little hero after he survived multiple dog bites while trying to save his younger sister from a very aggressive dog out in uh, Wyoming. Well, his aunt in a in an Instagram post was hailing the six-year-old boy, Bridger Walker, and I can tell you, he's a real American hero. And, you know, I've seen a, an update on this since. It's taken off as far as on social media. And Captain America, Chris Evans, sent him a message, and it shows... Uh, Bridger watching the video with his sister while dressed in his Captain America outfit. So super cute. See, this is what I'm talking about. This is the kind of stuff that needs to go viral in America. Not eggplant cakes, not not fleshy watermelons, six-year-olds who are saving the lives of their sisters. That's what's got to go viral. We can do this, America. I just want to offer a full endorsement that this is the kind of quality material that we need. And thank God for this kid who, who saved his sister's life and put himself in front of her when this dog was attacking. Uh, how incredible. And how good of Captain America to take the time to send him a video. I mean, really, what, what, what boy wouldn't want that? You can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, uh, please, as always, consider helping us spread the word by sharing this episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or a brief review. But for Brent, Lindsay, and myself, we want to say thanks for listening, and we will be back next week with more content. Mm -hmm.